Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. Of all the events I've been looking forward to this summer, I can't think of one that I'm more psyched about than the release next month of the Smithsonian Anthology of Hip Hop and Rap, a first-of-its-kind multimedia collection chronicling the evolution and impact of a musical form and social force that sits squarely at the intersection of culture and politics, which is, of course, the very same ground where this show has planted its fat ass too. The Smithsonian Anthology is a sprawling, staggeringly ambitious, and ostensibly definitive artifact. Nine CDs containing 129 genre-defining tracks, two of them, Cream and Triumph from our pal Rizza and his Wu-Tang brothers, and a 300-page book filled with essays by some of hip-hop's leading writers and critics and scores of amazing photographs spanning four decades of hip-hop history. And yet, as incredible as all of that sounds, the best thing about the Smithsonian Anthology of Hip-Hop and Rap is that its publication gives me an excuse a peg, as they call it in our business, to do something I have wanted desperately to do ever since we launched this half-baked, hair-brained escapade in conversational chaos nearly a year ago, to have on our show the artistic genius behind the Smithsonian Anthology of Hip Hop and Rap, behind that whole package, the guy who curated all those fantastic photos and chose the illustrators and designed the book, the guy who, I would argue, is more responsible than any other single person on planet Earth, for the visual manifestation of hip-hop, for its look and feel in its formative years as the founding creative director of Def Jam Records, a guy who speaks to the connection between street art, high art, and mass culture, as well as anyone I know. Also, an extremely dear friend of mine, and that would be Say Adams. The state of street art is rebuilding. The city is getting back on its feet. People are back to work, and as an artist, I'm happy to get an opportunity to continue to make work and to eventually see my friends again. For any reasonable, rational, remotely sane podcast host, getting Say Adams on their show would have been more than enough. But God knows no one has ever accused yours truly of being reasonable, irrational, or remotely sane. Not even close. So all along, as I fantasized about the day we'd eventually dragoon Say into being on Hell and High Water, I had this parallel fantasy going that somehow we would snag another equally influential and even more iconic figure in the world of street art, a guy whose graffiti and graphic designs, whose posters and prints and public murals, some authorized and some not, have made him famous around the globe. Also have landed him in jail more than once. And we could get that guy, who also happens to be a good friend of Say's, we'd get him to come on together. And what do you know? Here he is, Shepard Ferry. The state of our nation is perilous. It's great that Donald Trump is out, but the poison from the Trump era is still in the nation's bloodstream. Voter suppression is happening full steam, and that is something that we all need to worry about if we care about a meaningful democracy. Now, on top of that, we still have to worry about disproportionate influence from corporations, climate change, a zillion other things. But to tackle any of that, democracy has to work. Shepard Ferry and Say Adams were born eight years apart, Say in 1962, Shepard in 1970. Say is New York all the way, hailing from Jamaica, Queens, and living and working in Gotham City his entire life. Shepard grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, then made his way to Providence, Rhode Island to attend RISD, then migrated out to LA, where he now commands his street art empire. 
But while their backgrounds and arcs of their careers are different, their sensibilities and aesthetics are both deeply tied to the graffiti subculture in which Say was a prime player in New York in the late 70s and early 80s, working alongside his friends Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat, ultimately leading to his creation of the Beastie Boys logo and his work at Def Jam with Run DMC and Public Enemy and Jay-Z and countless other hip-hop luminaries. While that same graffiti scene was a staging ground for Shepard's emergence as a phenomenon in the late 80s, with his Andre the Giant has a posse sticker campaign, which then evolved into the ubiquitous Obey Giant campaign, catapulting Shepard Ferry to public prominence, and as I said before, landing him on more than a few nights behind bars. Both these guys have been so prolific that even taking a stab at describing their bodies of work would require an even bigger fool than me to try. And while the three of us did spend some time in our conversation talking specifically about some of their best-known pieces, Shepard's 2008 Obama Hope poster, Say's stunning black American flag for the National Museum of African American History and Culture, the bulk of our conversation was devoted to broader topics. How politics and activism informs their work, Shepard's explicitly and Say's implicitly, how street art is by definition political art, how each of them have taken the methods and tools of propaganda, subverted those tools and used them to make people think rather than submit, how both of them understood the visceral anti-establishment power at the nexus between music and street art, and how they also saw, long before many of their contemporaries, that as the 20th century came to a close and the 21st began to take shape, the kind of art that Shepard and Say love to make and make so well, accessible art, small d democratic art, the art you don't find in galleries or museums or private collections, but on the sides of abandoned buildings or album covers or in cheap, simple, eye-catching stickers, that was the kind of art that truly had a chance to change the world. Because that was the kind of art that we all truly need in our lives, especially when, as we are right now, we are all up against so much hell and high water. Well, it is one of the quality of life offenses, and uh, you can't just take one of those quality of life offenses. It's like a three-card Monty and uh, pickpocketing and uh, shoplifting and uh, uh, graffiti defacing our uh, public and private walls. Uh, They're all in the same uh, area of uh, destroying our uh, lifestyle and making it uh, difficult to enjoy uh, life, and I think uh, has to be responded to. So that is the former mayor of New York City long ago, Edward Koch, the Ed Koch, talking about the scourge of graffiti in New York City. In a famous uh, documentary from 1983, PBS documentary, iconic documentary called Style Wars, in which uh, one of our guests today made kind of his public debut, Say Adams' uh, documentary about the graffiti culture of that time. And I wanted to play it at the top of our talk today, you guys, because, you know, say you really were part of directly of that scene defacing the city. Uh, and Shepard, you were um, defacing a lot of other cities and occasionally coming to this one because you face every major city in the world. I'm sure you were uh, maybe a little later than 1983, but a few years later, you'd be doing the same thing. So uh, we are here with you two guys here on Hell and High Water, two incredibly special guests, my friends, Say Adams, and my soon-to-be friend, I guess, someone I've never met until today, Shepard Ferry, thank you both uh, for coming on the show today, you guys. Yeah, good to see you, John. Thank you for having me. I have to say, I've been I've been dreaming of this interview ever since we started the podcast. I've always wanted to do a show about street art and, and street art and politics, and you guys were my fantasy interview combination. Say, you, you and I have known each other for years, and I know you've known Shepard for years, but 
I know you really well. I don't know him at all. And I, I knew I could get you to come on the show, or at least I thought I could say, but I didn't had, I was like, I had no idea how I would get Shepard to come on. I'm a, I'm a fan. I have a lot of his things and t-shirts and, and some art in our house. Um, but I didn't have any connection to him. And then out of the blue earlier this year, somebody very nice, lovely person who works for Shepard reached out and said that, that Shepard had seen me on the circus wearing an obey giant t-shirt. Um, my show that I make at Showtime. And Shepard thought that it was cool that I was on there wearing this t-shirt. And he was like, I want John to have some more t-shirts. I like John. Let's send him some more stuff. So Shepard's lovely associate sent me a, an ungodly amount of swag. Like, I mean, hundreds of t-shirts showed up here of every kind, every size, shape, description, all of them, you know, naturally all of them brilliant. And also some some art, some things in a tube, you know, with with signed screen prints and, and things, pieces of art of yours, which like blew my mind. I'm like, uh, so this is like, first of all, thank you, Shepard, incredibly generous. And thank you to all of the people on your staff who are incredibly nice to me. But, but more importantly, I was like, oh, um, thank you for sending me the t-shirts and the art, but can you also facilitate an interview <laughs> for my podcast? And they said, oh, well, you know, we'd be happy to try. And I said, well, here's the, the bait on the hook. Um, I want to do it with say Adams and they all went, Oh, say Adams, say Adams, say Adams. We love say Adams. I mean, you know, like everybody loves say Adams, right? So that's how this all came about, um, in this crazy roundabout way. And I'm thrilled that it's happening. And, and I would normally on this podcast, we would normally start and talk about stuff you guys are doing right now. And then we'd step back and talk about your history, but because you guys, I'm so curious. And because I know you guys have known each other for a long time, but I don't really know the story of how you got to be friends. And I don't know like the whole tale, except I know say has said wonderful things about Shepard and how you guys have been friends for a long time. I've never really gotten the details of the story and I want them now. So let's just kind of start, invert our normal format and we will start with history. Uh, and you guys can tell me the story, the grand epic saga, the genesis of the great love story that is say Adams and Shepard Ferry go. How did you guys first become friends? You know, I'll let Shepard tell it because to me, it's not that fascinating. <laughs> well, it was fascinating to me because, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I grew up listening to punk rock and then all of a sudden the Beastie Boys and Public Enemy and Run DMC all hit and they all had a connection to Def Jam Records where you were the creative director, art director. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I became friends with Glenn Friedman who shot the Beastie Boys and, and Slick Rick and LL and uh, a couple of Public Enemy covers and Ice-T and... Uh, you know, I knew that you and Glenn knew each other. He talked about you a good bit. And then, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know, in the early 2000s, we connected. But I especially remember you reaching out to me about a few of the illustrations I'd done of some of the iconic Def Jam artists because yeah. you were working on that Def Jam 25 book, which I guess was... Um, mm -hmm coming out and you were working on in the mid 2000s. But I, you know, I was, of course, a fan of what you had done. Say did those graffiti logos that the Beastie Boys had on their hats early on. And, yeah. you know, a lot of killer stuff. And my fascination with how all of this stuff came together, graffiti, hip hop, DJing, skateboarding, it really was about downtown New York culture. And, you know, and Say was right in the middle of that. Yeah, yeah. So you guys didn't, you didn't know each other then at all. You got to know each other in the early 2000s. So yeah. in the kind of formative period, you guys are a few years apart, right? Yeah. Shepard, you're 51, I think, say you're no, what, 58? 59. 59. Yeah, yeah. So you guys are a little bit apart in age, but yeah. you didn't know each other back when you were no. coming up. But you know, that's East Coast versus West Coast too. It's like, I'm in New York and, you know, I certainly had seen all of the Obey campaign right from the very beginning, but 
if you don't know people, you know, this is when it was much more difficult to connect. You had to be on a mission. And I remember seeing the Tony Clifton illustrations. We pasted everywhere and I never put it together that that was your work. And that was when I was truly fascinated because, you know, as a person that works on Illustrator, I was, you know, always looking at people that could do sort of those type of illustrations. It's not an easy thing to do. And so I was completely taken with that. And when I reached out to you to get copies of your illustrations for the Def Jam book, you were kind enough to not only allow us to do that, but you sent me a copy of your book and the thing was a brick. And I remember thinking <laughs> this must have cost a fortune to send and you couldn't have been more kind and you put all this other stuff in the package with it. And to me, anytime an artist shares his work or her work in that way, it just connects to a place that is sort of deep rooted. And I think that's one of the things I love about artists is that it's a sharing community. And that was really the, the, the first time that I truly connected with your work and then had some sort of a connection to you. And it just seemed like everywhere I went, you were there. And it reminded me of the old days of graffiti because in some ways it was very similar to the concept of getting up, borough to borough, all city, yeah. You just had this sort of global concept of world domination. And the only person that I remember thinking that way was Keith Haring. And I remember telling you that once at one of your openings. It makes me think about that question. And Shepard, it's kind of you, you just you you have the same fact. I'm from LA. I'm in between you guys age-wise, but you know, I'm 55, right? But I had that same grew up in LA, went to school in Chicago, and eventually moved east. And as soon as I got here, that nexus of hip hop, skate culture punk, like all that stuff. As just anthropologically, I was super interested. And I remember going to the pop shop when it still existed, you know, still started hanging out in New York in 88, 89, right? So Keith was still alive then. Um, it's kind of iconic, this stuff, kind of trying to figure it out, but not being part of that culture, being more like a journalist and being fascinated by all of it, but not feeling like I was part of it at all. But Shepard, you were part of it, but the scenes were so different, right? I mean, you're not, again, the ages aren't that different, right? But and you were making the Obey Giant stuff started in the late 80s, right? 80, 88, 89? 89, yeah. So it's amazing to me in some ways that it took as long as it took for you guys to get together. It does speak to the fact that even in the modern age of telecommunications and the internet and everything, that the West Coast and East Coast really is like a giant, in terms of like art scenes, at least, and culture scenes, yeah. they're really wildly different. Yeah. I actually grew up on the East Coast in South Carolina. Then I went to RISD. Yeah. And so I was living in Providence, but my best friend went to NYU. So. Starting around 1990, I used to cruise into New York and stay at his apartment and uh, just go walk around doing stencils and stickers and posters all night. Right. But the thing is, I had this fear that the New York scenesters would not welcome me. And so I didn't really know how to reach out. I just thought like, hey, I got to prove myself. You know, everything about New York is like, yeah, if you don't keep it real, you're not hardcore, you know, welcome in here. You know, like I was um, <laughs> I was like, oh, man, I got to prove myself. And, you know, it was around the late 90s. Well, you know, in the mid 90s, I met some people that say knows like Zephyr and Futura and they, they were cool to me, but they weren't really active bombers still at that point. But when I met Jess and Med, they were still up on the Cross Bronx Expressway like crazy. And I remember Jess came up to me, saw me put a sticker up 
on Orchard Street and he walked up to me and he goes like, you Shepard Farley, right? And I was like, uh, and, and he goes, he goes, I've seen, you know, I've seen your stuff up all over the place. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, that's me. And, um, he was like, no, I like it. All of a sudden he got friendly as soon as I acknowledged. And, and he said, you know, I'm jest and I'm open in this place called, uh, a life. And that was when the a life store was about to open. But all of a sudden I was in the mix with a lot of these people that I was terrified would hate me as, as a, Rhode Island interloper, you know, and then I had moved to the West Coast in 96, but still came back to New York to do stuff all the time. I mean, the energy from New York graffiti was something I latched on to immediately going to art school where everything right. is sort of hyper scrutinized, analyzed. You're told that nothing's original. Everything has been done before. And it felt very liberating to see graffiti done anonymously without a big critique <laughs> <laughs> and and, um, and not, not asking for permission. And I needed that as a counterbalance to what I was dealing with, with the more academic side of art. And I also, it just appealed to the DIY sensibility that attracted me to skateboarding, punk rock and hip hop, where yeah. this is not about asking permission, but just about creating your own thing, whether other people like it or not. So say you had, you know, by the time you had gone to start a Def Jam in 83, is that right? It was earlier than that, right. but Def Jam was formed in 1984. But my relationship with Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons is, you know, a few years earlier than that. Right, because Beastie Boys is, right. you know, is late. The first album was what, right. 87, right? So, you know. 86. But 86, yeah. okay. That was my senior year in college. I can't remember. Yeah. Whether it's like I, spring, fall versus spring. Yeah. I can't remember. I just remember that, that album dominating my life. But you said a second ago, like, you were now in Def Jam. By the time Shepard oh, yeah. started to do, no. started to really break through as someone no. that people knew who weren't just completely in the graffiti world. But you saw that work and it, it pierced your consciousness? Well, I'm a graphic designer, so I'm relating to it in a completely different way than my graffiti and, and street art contemporaries. Right. Yeah, you know, I, I just can appreciate a good illustration. I mean... You know, not that this has anything to do with the conversation, but Tristan Eaton is one of my favorite artists for that very reason. He's mastered the craft of illustration and he knows how to use the programs in a skillful way. And I imagine, Shepard, you had to do the very same thing because that was how you got your work to that place where you could expand. It was just one of those things. And so I've always been somebody that loves a, a good craftsman. And I know that that's a bad word when you're talking to people these days, because everybody, like you said, likes to keep it real. But, you know, to be technically savvy is important if you're going to be a graphic designer. Well, I, I only think it's bad because it's gender biased. It's craftsperson these days. But thank you. But but um, that's between fifty one and fifty nine, right there. That's it. That's the that's the um, eight that's the eight year woke uh, gulf, right there. And I'm still way behind in wokeness. But um, yeah. thank you for that. I mean, really, what I looked at was I looked at the spirit of graffiti and felt that. I didn't start writing in a black book at age 12. There was no way I could catch up with people who were really part of that culture. But I had been into making homemade stencils and stickers and t-shirts through skate and punk culture in high school. I thought that art should definitely be out in front of people in their lives, that public space shouldn't just be dominated by advertising and government signage. And I also wanted my imagery to be even if it was provocative and a little bit mysterious, I didn't want it to be nearly as sort of insider and cryptic as a lot of graffiti is. Right. So 
I just used all the different tools that worked with uh, how to fulfill my philosophy and using screen printing and stenciling and learning how to use Illustrator because Illustrator as a program works perfectly with screen printing because of the flat color. So the way I used to have to sketch stuff out and make a screen and try it out and see if it worked, I could walk through that process in Illustrator, a lot of the trial and error that I had to do with physical screens prior to that. So, you know, and I'm, I'm just obsessive about progressing. So once I figured out how to use the digital tools along with traditional, you know, I still illustrate by hand. A lot of people don't know that, but I right. do my illustrations by hand. But I mean, that's one of the reasons I responded to your work. It's really strong graphically. You have a, a an appreciation for a lot of the same things, including the awesome pop artists like Rauschenberg and Johns and Lichtenstein and, and Warhol. Right, so. right. Yes. Hugely. And, you know, Say and I've talked about that a lot. And I just wonder, I want to stick with you, Shepard, just ask this question, just because Say invoked Keith Haring, and then I kind of mentioned him in passing. Like, when you think about your influences, again, Keith Haring, not that much older than, would not have been that much older than, than you are now, but were you like consciously like at RISD thinking about Keith Haring as like, was that somebody who you thought of as you know, some of the Haring, Basquiat, people like that who were in that vanguard of the first people to break through from street art into galleries? Were those like very self-consciously on your mind as you were developing your craft or your art? Well, Keith Haring was a huge influence on me conceptually. I mean, I love his his work, but really only Keith Haring can do Keith Haring. There's a lot of people I bite and I didn't feel like Keith Haring could be one of them. You know, I mean, we're all influenced, but I'm saying yeah. philosophically, the way that he worked in the subways, you know, did the chalk drawings, had done paste-ups on lamp bases, painted murals, did work around social issues like nuclear proliferation and the crack epidemic and the AIDS crisis. And then he made his work accessible, doing the pop shop, making prints, making t-shirts, making buttons. He made skateboards. All of that for me was like a blueprint. You know, yeah, it was a blueprint. It was the yeah. way that I wanted to try to infiltrate culture. And so, yeah, I was very inspired by Herring. And in a lot of ways, you know, the people who say like, yo, that's sellout, man, don't do that. You know, it's like a lot of times that's insecurity from them about trying to reach a bigger audience. But I felt okay because Keith Herring's entire practice to me was totally unassailable. So if Keith Haring did it, yeah. I could do it. Yeah. But you know, the other thing that happens is you don't know what the future looks like until somebody shows it to you. Right. Or if you're just one of these people that's just a trailblazer. But there's a lot of bumps in the road that people do not see. And the thing that I loved about Keith is he literally paved the way for other people. And certainly a lot of what he took were things that he learned from Andy Warhol. But it's very easy to look at something 20 years later and go, oh, that's what it looks like. Yeah. But if you don't know, like you said, that insecurity will prevent you from doing so many different things creatively. And it's one of the things that I, I love about his art and how it still resonates with people well over 30 years later. It's interesting though, say, you know, I think about you and at a pretty young age, right? You'd been in that graffiti scene. And even though no one's gonna say like, like, like Def Jam was a corporate move, right? There's the beginning of a process towards like respectable employment at a company where you were gonna be kind of putting, you kind of put the graffiti thing aside 
and stayed connected to the scene and the people and the inspirations of a lot of it. But you were like, I'm going to go get a job. I'm going to work in a much more kind of legit way. Way more than, it, I mean, Shepard still isn't really that. It was, <laughs> it was much more simple than that. It was Keith Haring got picked up by Tony Shafrazi. Jean-Michel got picked up by Anina Nosai and Mary Boone and, and all the rest of them. And then a lot of the graffiti artists sort of had to fend for themselves. A lot right. of cats went to Europe and that was a, a lifetime commitment. And I just said, I'm not going to be one of those artists that's going to get picked up by one of these bourgeois white galleries. So I'm going to have to find an alternative. <laughs> and graphic design seemed like it was more in line with what I was interested in as a teenager. So Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons were there and they gave me an opportunity, but I still had to figure it out because that path had not been laid yet. I'm going to I'm gonna come back uh, later on the podcast to this kind of concept because that story, the whole thing with the Shifrazi Gallery and, and Keith and, and Basquiat getting picked up and your friends, you know, the whole thing of like, the streets versus the suites. I heard someone use this phrase at the beginning of Kamala Harris's campaign for president. Somebody said that she could play to the suites and the streets. And I had never heard that phrase before. And I thought, well, that could be a bumper sticker for someone somewhere. But it actually does get to an interesting thing about the art world and and what you guys have done in the course of your careers. So we're going to get to that a little later on. But first, uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back from this break, uh, we will talk about uh, the conversation I want to have is a conversation about politics and art with Say Adams and Shepard Ferry. This, this is well. I'll, I'll take a nap and I'll let Shepard uh, handle this. Oh, come on, fuck you. <laughs> Say yes. You you are political. You just don't want to admit you're political. You're a different kind of political, and we're going to talk about the difference: implicit politics, explicit politics. Because don't pretend like you don't have politics. Um, we're going to take a break right now, though. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. On the other side of the break, this is Helen Highwater. So we're back uh, with part two of Hell and High Water with Say Adams and Shepard Ferry. And I want to listen to uh, a piece of sound of Shepard talking about something that tees up a discussion about politics and art that I want to dive into. So let's play that sound right now. What I try to do with the people I, I choose is I choose them because of um, either their you know, positive or negative contributions, um, depending on whether it's a dictator or like a a musician or something. Some people I'm trying to uh, put put on a pedestal because I think that they that they inspired me, like like Chuck D or, or Johnny Rotten or Jam Master J. Then other people, uh, Lenin, Stalin, George Bush. You know, I'm saying like, look at how these guys get into power. Sometimes I've taken that whole strategy, which has been used by advertising and propaganda forever, of take something make it seem important, make it seem powerful, use emotionally potent phrases and images to get people's attention, to, you know, indoctrinate them, um, and, and, you know, to at least get them to, uh, to, you know, feel like, wow, this is big, this is bigger than me. So Shepard, you know, obviously propaganda is a big deal for you, right? I mean, just conceptually, like propaganda, subverting propaganda, the tools and, and the way propaganda works. And again, I think subverting and inverting, right? That is yeah. a big yeah. part of like your whole life's work. So I, I guess the question I want to tee up for you, which I think you can go off on, is like, explain the arc that goes from obey to Obama, 
right? Like, how do you get from what Obey was trying to do to what Obama did? Just that thematic, intellectual, conceptual arc, I would love to hear you talk about. Yeah, it might seem like it's a pretty wide chasm between those two things, but it's it really wasn't in that Obey was about encouraging people to question the status quo and and think, do I is that something I want to submit to? You know, is the dominant narrative something I agree with? And I became more and more explicit with my politics during the George Bush era. Prior to that, I'd been dealing with a lot of principles like abuse of authority and lack of privacy, surveillance, things like that, racism. But then when Bush took office and then quickly started talking about the need to invade Iraq and weapons of mass destruction and the need for people to forfeit some of their privacy with the Patriot Act, I, you know, I critiqued all of that. But then when I saw Obama speak at the 2004 Democratic Convention, I thought, oh, here's somebody that's very out of step with the status quo and yet very palatable to the mainstream. So I sort of, you know, kept that in the back of my mind. And then when he announced his candidacy, I looked at his policies and they were all things that I agreed with that normally I would have to, it would have to be a hypothetical. I'd have to say, we can't support George Bush. Wouldn't it be great if we could get these ideas? And whether it was a green economy or reducing the power of lobbyists in Washington or the potential of uh, universal health care. All of those things seemed like fantasies, but then Obama campaigned behind a lot of those things. And so I realized that I had been forced to mostly just critique power rather than support somebody that was in the position to take power because of the bad ideas most people had. So I really felt it was a logical progression right. from obey, which is really question your obedience to right. saying question George Bush to, okay, here's someone that is coming from a different place than George Bush. And I always qualified my support for Obama with our two-party system does not give us enough options. You know, you should make up your own mind. But um, here's Obama's website. Go look at his policy positions and don't fall in line with his campaign because you're a fan of my art or you dig this poster. Right. But every now and then, I think it's really important to stand behind things, not just against things. And so as I've slowly matured, very slowly matured over the years, (laughs) I've, I've decided that I need to advocate for things, not just criticize things. Well, just in the middle of even that sound we played, right, you're talking about you know, you're putting some people on a pedestal and tearing some people down, right? And when you're talking about like, who are the kind of people you want to focus on or the the faces you want to employ? And it seems like that's, it's another way of saying it, right? For a long period of time, the people who you were focused on were really focused on to make the critique. And Obama was really the first, as far as I know, the first political figure that you were like, okay, I'm going to be for somebody. Yeah. And I, I guess I ask you say, you know, again, just go back to graphic design, you know, there's a lot of reasons why that poster worked. And I saw I saw some video of you, Shepard, that was kind of awesome. It was like Obama says to Ferry, you know, how'd you get that thing to be so popular so fast? And he's like, well, you were like part of it. You know, the internet, the internet in you kind of helped, right? But it's also the case, the poster's kind of brilliant, right? So I wonder whether like you have a memory, say, of like seeing that when that image first appeared and having an appreciation for it just as a piece of popular art, as a piece of, of I don't want to call it propaganda, but as a piece of promotional promotional art, so to speak, for a candidate I know you believed in. The thing that I, I remember the most 
was how many other artists were thinking the same way. And I really could never put my hands on a moment in time when artists came together for a united cause and cracked through. You know, we'd always been complaining in the 80s and obviously in the 60s, you know, during the civil rights movement. And, you know, there had been countless artists that were proactive with their work and, you know, doing beautiful protest posters and all of it. But that was the moment when street art stood up and stood for something. And I don't know if it was lightning in a bottle, if you had a conversation, Shepard, with a handful of other artists, or if it was just synergy. But when that book came out with all of those images around the Obama campaign, it was so overwhelming. And I remember thinking, man, I really wish I would have been a part of this project because I did not know we had so many people that were like-minded that were artists and illustrators and graphic designers. Yeah, and and I don't think there's really not been anything like it since, including obviously any of the Democratic candidates, including Obama in 2012, when a little bit of the bloom was off the rose for certain people, including Shepard Ferry. You know, I guess the question that I say I get to your politics, I do want to ask you guys both this question, just because we're talking about propaganda, and I know, Shepard, you're going to have strong feelings about this, right? I mean, as I have gotten into my dotage, and I think about why are things in the world that I spend my time and what I cover and what I talk about most of the time, I think about like what's most fucked up and what's most different. And th- there's always been propaganda and there's these tools have been in play for many generations, but the kind of degree to which the propagandizing has become so explicit and become part of the news media, um, if you think about state television during the Trump administration in the form of Fox News and others on the right, and the way in which it's created this insane thing we now have, which I think is the most fundamental poison in the democratic system of all, many poisons, many toxins, but the disinformation, misinformation, conspiracy theory, the whole alternative ecosystem that has grown up in which now the country really does not exist because it's polarized politically, but where there are just two sets of different realities that pervade and the fact that we do not share common facts anymore. And there really is a reality-based community and a non-reality-based community. And a lot of that, I don't think Trump is the cause of it, but he was certainly an accelerant and a coagulant and a force that ignited it and made it burn brighter. So I'm curious to say, because you think about this stuff a lot, like what's your analysis of, you know, as Donald Trump doesn't have a platform on Twitter, doesn't have a public office, but continues to have this incredible power this hold over tens of millions of Americans in a way that is really scary to a lot of people, including me. How do you analyze that? What is it that he and the people around him have done so effectively that has given him this kind of power in the information ecosystem that now exists? Because it's really something and nothing like anything I've ever experienced in my life. Well, the the sad thing is that there are more like-minded people that think that way. We like to believe that they're not there, but they've always been there. And all he did was pull the covers off of this thing that's been there. I mean, this is, like Shepard said, you know, the the core of what racism is all about. As a person of color, I've always felt a lot of these things, but nobody was listening. Right. It took an army of 20-year-old white kids to finally fight for black justice. That's horrible. That's what it takes. We've all just sort of watched the parade go by and become numb to it. And they said no more. 
And, you know, we had little movements like this in the 80s, but nothing stuck because everybody wasn't affected. And here we are in this space where we're talking about things that we've been screaming about since the 50s and 60s, but now we're finally starting to get a little taste of what social justice looks like. Sherrod, give me your analysis of, of Donald Trump and his enablers as incredibly effective and profoundly dangerous propagandists. Why does it work? Well, because Donald Trump understood a really, at a gut level, something a lot of people are susceptible to. Grifters use this tool all the time. They figure out what their mark most desires, and then they say they can provide that. So Donald Trump said to steel workers in Pennsylvania and coal workers in West Virginia, I'm bringing your jobs back and TV builders in Ohio. And of course he couldn't do it, but there's that. It's um, promising that he can deliver on a fantasy that he can't deliver on because they want it so badly, they will suspend all logical analysis of evidence. And then there's the wealth disparity that's been growing. And so people are struggling and they want to not feel like the American dream is passing them by, that they are ineffectual players in the American dream. Someone has to be doing something to them to keep them from achieving their birthright. And so that's the other thing Donald Trump provided, scapegoats, lots of scapegoats. And when I analyze why the American dream is harder to achieve, I look at the top down issues. But he wanted to say to people who really should be allies, because anyone that's middle class or below is dealing with all the problems of concentration of wealth and power. And yet he found ways to keep those people divided. It's the opposite of being a benevolent leader for a nation. It's quite destructive, but it's effective psychologically. And it requires a public that's capable of making a sophisticated analysis of the dynamics of our economy, of, of everything. And so this is where I'm frustrated. Yeah, A lot of my art is about trying to provide a very simple and powerful or seductive image to bring people into a more complex conversation that they wouldn't be having otherwise. And so when people say, oh, what you do is propaganda, I go, no, I'm trying to initiate the conversation. I'm not saying this is the end of the conversation. Propaganda makes you want to feel like you just fall in line and don't have to think. I actually want people to think. Yeah. All that makes sense to me. And yet, you know, there are these fundamental juxtapositions and disjunctures that I think for all of us are really hard to get our heads around. And, and I'll point to one right now to get to you say, I want to play a little bit of sound of you in a second. But you know, it's September of 2016. Donald Trump is about two months from being elected president. And you are working on your One Nation mural project for the, the National Museum uh, for African American History and Culture in DC outside, spending four days making this piece of art that is now, I guess, is associated with you as any single piece that you've ever done. It's a big black flag collage piece. I'm going to get you to talk about it in a second. But first, I want to hear you talk about it. We're going to play the sound right now. Let's hear Say Adams talking about One Nation. I wanted people to understand that this flag represents all of us. When you zoom in and you look at the detail, you recognize that it's not about black or white. It's about everybody. But 
you know, that's there really just to get people's attention. But when you see something that's black, you're like, oh, what's this? Is this a political statement? You know, what is he trying to say? I just thought it was a perfect opportunity to incorporate everything that I've learned as an artist and put it into something that is very familiar to everybody in America. So it's an epic piece, and I've still got that commission for you. You're going to make one of those for me. That's a really good soundbite, by the way. Yeah, yeah you smart. You sound smart in there, and you're like, I don't talk about politics. I'm going to sleep through this part of the podcast. Yeah, fuck you. So, so just talk about it, because you know I love this piece. A lot of people love this piece. And talk about how it came to be, and describe it. You know, This is an audio medium here, and say a little more about what the politics of it are, because it has politics, as we're clear in that soundbite. Well, when... I was approached by the National Museum of African American History and Culture to make a piece. They didn't say what. They just wanted me to do an installation on the National Mall. President Obama was going to be there, you know, other political dignitaries. And I just thought it was the perfect opportunity to just really get people to focus on something that I sort of thought needed attention from early on. And I said, okay, this is an opportunity to create something that is near and dear to all Americans. But instead of making it red, white, and blue, I was going to make it black because it forces people to focus. And Sister Sonia Sanchez is there with me. And all of these other revolutionaries that I read about growing up, and they're watching me paint this black American flag on the National Mall in front of thousands of Americans. And it was the sort of moment that I had waited for my whole life. And the idea that we had a Black American museum celebrating this moment was just the most beautiful thing I'd ever been a part of. Under a Black American president in his, at the closing out, his, coming to the end of his second term. Just describe a little bit, one of the things you talked about how when you get up close to it, you understand that it's black from a distance, but you get up close to it. And when you see what it's, what the collage is made of, that it, it takes you into a different place. Just talk about that a little bit, just so people understand why the close-up view takes you into a different understanding of it. Well, when you get closer, you see that it's not just the black flag. There's Angelo Dundee next to Muhammad Ali. There's Tony Bennett. There's Catherine Hepburn, you know, it's John Lennon, Bob Dylan, Frank Sinatra. Everybody's represented, but you got to get close. Right. When you're looking at this flag behind me, it just looks like a flag. Right, there it is. And all that is there to do is to get your attention. When we were talking about propaganda, that's exactly the thing. This is to get your attention. Now zoom in. Right. And let's have a conversation. And those images are all images from like, because I've been in your studio many times. It's like you're a collector of old magazines. It's like you're traveling around the country, picking up magazines that have been out of business for 40 years and you're just stockpiling them and then ripping them to shreds and pulling out images that are either kind of iconic or ironic or symbolic in some way. And it's embedded in the piece. So the closer you get up, it's not just that it's both white and black. It's also it harks back to a different time in America when the American demography was different. There's all kinds of you get the closer you get to it, the deeper it gets. Right. Yeah. It's an opportunity to educate young people about who we are and where we come from. And we live in an age now where pop culture rules, everything is instant, but the people that relate to this work, you have to be of a certain age 
or interested in learning something about who you are. So four years later, Shepard, we're headed down the home stretch of the 2020 election. You know, as I said a second ago, when Say was doing that piece, it's all of those things were awesome. The museum was being opened, black president. Everybody thought Hillary Clinton was going to get elected. We were not going to have to have a racist, a racist, xenophobic, fascist, borderline autocratic president. Great moment on the National Mall two months later. Well, fuck you. Four years later, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're on the backside of the murder of George Floyd. We've had racial justice protests around the country. The most kind of apocalyptic feeling period I, in my lifetime and, and certainly the most apocalyptic presidential election. I did not cover 1968, so I can't really speak to that. But you get the phone call for, hey, Time Magazine calls and says, Shepard, you've done two covers for us previously. We'd like you to do a third one that will come out uh, right before Election Day. Do they tell you what they want or do they just say go? Well, they said we want it to be about voting and the extra challenge of voting when there's a pandemic going on, you know, voting in the wake of the social justice protests around George Floyd's death. They were like, yeah, you know, just kind of channel the zeitgeist, I guess. <laughs> Do your thing, bud. Yeah. And, you know, not to disparage Time Magazine in any way, but they're not always easy. I've had a lot of back and forth and I was incredibly busy still working on get out the vote initiatives. And I thought, okay, if I spend a lot of time on this time cover and then it doesn't end up coming out or it's not something I like, that's time taken away from supporting a lot of these voter registration orgs that I've been working with that might have been better used time. But I did have an image of one of my coworkers wearing the bandana for a project that we did to raise money for voting rights organizations that was like, okay, the bandana was one of the earliest symbols of in colonial America of anti-English rule. So it's like got a historical significance as a rebellious symbol, putting iconography on a bandana. There's the pandemic where people are wearing bandanas. There's all the history around, uh, you know, people with Molotovs wearing bandanas. Right. I thought, okay, this image of Marin, my coworker, wearing the bandana I designed with the ballot box on the front. She's not a man. She's not white. A lot of Asians have been disparaged because of COVID. Like this image makes sense to me. I'm going to illustrate this. And if they like it, cool. If they don't like it, cool. Luckily, I submitted it and they said, yeah, we really like it, actually. <laughs> but um, why not a, a black or a Latino person? And I said, well, I definitely am with you on the need for anti-racist imagery, but I think this was the only reference image I had in this period of time. And Asians are are also discriminated against yeah. and don't have enough representation. So considering all the constraints, I, you know, I hope that you'll think that this still puts across the idea that the United States is a multicultural place and it needs to be respectful of that at every you know, every level. And they uh, they were like, OK, you convinced us. We'll do it. And it was the first time that instead of using the time masthead, yes, yes. they put another word and they put vote. And um, was that your idea? No, no, uh, it, it wasn't. I mean, I had done a mock up where it had um, vote not only in the bandana itself, but also some spread out vote type across the bottom. But they were motivated to you know, just make that the focus of it. And they let me know that about a day before it actually was released. And I couldn't have been happier because when democracy is under threat, 
even if you're a, you know, hypothetically a somewhat neutral news organization, it's time to take a stand for right. the governing principle of the nation. Yeah, it, it, I, <laughs> I, yes, I couldn't agree more, as you know. I think it's kind of great. Your th- as I said, your third time magazine cover, the first one was the Obama one. Then you did one that was a protester, yeah. right? So it's kind yeah. of like, a, it was also a kind of a synthesis of the two previous ones, right? You had kind of like, you know, a president of the United States and a, a protester. And now kind of those two, the streams kind of came together to make that image. And I, I imagine it's the case that even though Time Magazine, what it used to be, it still is a thing that around the world still gets in front of a lot of eyeballs, you know, and leaves a mark. Yeah. I mean, my, my parents and my parents' friends, you know, they're like, okay, we thought all this nonsense you were up to was <laughs> just going to leave you a, a ne'er-do-well for life. But yeah. but we saw that time cover. So, yeah. All right. We're going to take, uh, take one more quick break here. Uh, Shepard Ferry, Say Adams on Hell and High Water. We're going to take a quick break, uh, sell some soap flakes uh, without using any propaganda tools, to my knowledge. And then we'll come back on the other side and talk about my earlier reference about sweets and streets and some music here with these two awesome dudes on Hell and High Water. And we are back for the third and final part of Hell and High Water with Say Adams and Shepard Ferry. And we've mentioned this guy a couple times already. Legendary, iconic, you know, couldn't be more important to both of you. And uh, someone who still looms incredibly large in the the world of like how we all understand what street art is. And for a lot of people, I mean, the guy has made iconic images. People who don't even know who he is or what he is or where he comes from or any of the history have worn a t-shirt or a button uh, of Keith Haring's uh, work from that kind of seminal time in the 70s and 80s. You know, Keith wrote these incredible journals and we all know he died way too young. And there's a thing we found of an actor named Kyle Soler, a film that was produced by an art gallery in England, the Tate of of Kyle Soler, theatrical actor, also a film actor, uh, reading from Keith's journals. And when I heard this, I thought that this piece of Keith's journaling was something that had great relevance to our conversation today. So let's take a listen to the words of Keith Haring as read by Kyle Soler. People might say, if you're not interested in being a part of the system, then you shouldn't care that you're being ignored by the museums and the curators. I really do believe that it will all happen later, the acceptance. My support network is not made up of museums and curators, but of real people. And that's good because everything I've ever tried to do was cut through all that bullshit anyway. It seems to me the only thing to do in this world is to do something. The doing is what the world is. Wow, that's such a good quote. The doing is what the world is. Yes. I wrote the foreword to the Keith Haring journals when it was re-released in 2010. That's from the journals. Looking back at some of the stuff you guys have both said, it it gets us back to this thing of kind of where you guys have come from, where you're going. Because of course, that quote at the very beginning, it's like, I'm not doing this for museums. I'm not doing this for gallerists. I'm not doing this for establishment acceptance. I'm doing this because I have this constituency. It's people, right? And my friends and that populist impulse, right? And that's how you guys both kind of got into this, right? That's what was animating your work and took you in different directions. But now you're both like, you know, museums and gallerists and, and every possible kind of mainstream establishment embrace has come your way. And I guess my first question about that, I'll start with you, Say, is like, how's that feel? Is that, um, at, all, is that at all conflicted or is that just no, like no. fucking great? You know, when you put a lifetime into a mission and a body of work, it's justified that eventually it's going to bear fruit. It's like, look at how long it took. I mean, younger artists have the benefit of stepping 
into this situation and they just follow a trail of breadcrumbs that Keith Haring left in Jean-Michel and they never have to worry about making mistakes and it affecting their career. When you invested a lifetime into making this work and it bears fruit, that's a wonderful thing, but it doesn't happen for a lot of people. Look at all of my contemporaries from the 80s. Very few of them have had the, the kind of career that even Shepard has had. And, you know, there's not that much space in terms of, you know, their age, but it's the time that we're living in and the approach, obviously, to the way that they make work. But it's a long, long time to wait. And it definitely feels great when you finally get to a point where you can take a breather and look at this lifetime of work that you've created and people celebrate it. But think about all the people that never get to see that. Shepard, I, I think you probably hear this more, right? Because of the fact that for so long, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know where you get the energy. I mean, just how much work you do. You were just like, just uh, nonstop, right? And you're still doing a ton of street work all the time, right? In addition yeah. to the corporate work you do, the branding work you do, the other stuff you do. I think you probably hear more, you get people, you mentioned actually earlier on this podcast that you get people who occasionally will cry sell out, right? When there's some fancy watch or something that you do some work for. Is there at all, and I'm not suggesting at all there should be, I'm just curious how you navigate the radical politics that you have, the reputation that you have as being fierce and uncompromising, willing to go to jail for your art and all that stuff which you've done uh, with, you know, doing some campaign for some watch that costs, you know, $95,000 or something. I mean, yeah, and people throw barbs at you, right? So how does that, how do you work through that and think about it and talk about it? Well, one thing that probably by my late 20s started to hit me is that the underground culture is really great as a free space and an incubator, but it's not where the change happens. It's where the mentality of people who want to make change is, you know, the seeds are planted and, and nurtured, but you actually have to infiltrate the mainstream to make change. And sometimes the mainstream just follows you. Other times you, you got to give it some help. Yeah. And for, you know, at least 25 years, I've been calling what I do the inside outside strategy. So right. always re remaining faithful to that belief that you need to be suspicious of power. You need to question the machinations of the system. Um, you need to be prepared at any moment to work outside the system to promote your ideals in an uncompromised way. But when you have an opportunity to infiltrate the system, reach an audience that you can't reach any other way, use the machinery of the system against itself in a sense, detournement, improve the system from within, you'd be a fool not to take those opportunities. And when you look at the people that make their way in, whether it's in union organizing, community organizing, politics, you know, a lot of the corporate world, it's the people that can have part of their personality be very radical and then another part of their personality be very diplomatic. And I, you know, I just, I just look at that and I don't say, I don't, I'm not because I'm craving power. I just want to make a difference. And so these are all different ways to make a difference. And I was never good at business, but then for somebody that got good enough at business just to survive, all of a sudden, a bunch of the things I was doing started to thrive. And that gave me the freedom to give money back to a ton of organizations doing work on the ground that 
was a, an extension of the ideas of it in my art that allowed me to feel like I'm not just a picture maker. I actually get to be meaningfully involved in pushing these things forward in the world. So, you know, all of that, whether, you know, if it's doing something with Hublot watches where there's a, I, I've mandated as part of the project that there's a donation to Amnesty International, you know, I feel like I'm not sure, you know, the people that buy expensive watches and yachts, I might not make them reassess their entire way of looking at the world, but I am going to redirect a little bit of their money to something that really matters to me. So one of the places where it seems to me you guys have a, a shared love of music, right? And have done it. I mean, say obviously at Def Jam and, and, and you know, it's been part of the hip hop world for a long time. And Shepard, you've done tons of musical collaborations, tons of album covers, done, you're a DJ. Like you guys are, are, are music heads at the highest level. And it does seem to me that one of the places where this very thing resides most powerfully is in music, right? Where the delicate balance between commercialism and all of the imperatives of like what happens in, in a capitalist society where you have a large industry that makes money off of what it does for artists and, and for the companies that, that back them and the the kind of people who do hip hop or we used to do punk or still do punk, the animating impulse of a lot of musicians, which tends to be more rebellious and tends to be more countercultural and tends to be more anti-establishment. And so it's like, it's the music thing that kind of ties together a lot of the street culture, street art, your politics, et cetera. And it brings me back to you say, which I, which, which is the, the kind of question about whether in some ways being as tied to hip hop as you are and have done so, did so much for so many bands that were so political, whether that's kind of a way I said something earlier about implicit versus explicit politics, whether in fact a lot of the work you were doing at Def Jam was political, even if you weren't like, I'm a political artist. I'm pretty sure you would say you're not, that if I ask you, are you, are you say Adam's a political artist? Well, how, how would you answer that question? Well, the reason I say I'm not is because, like Shepard said, in order to break through the mainstream, you have to participate. You can't be anti-big business right. and find a way to succeed. You can take you know, a lot of that revenue and do other things with it. So if I'm supporting God's Love We Deliver or City Harvest or Students for a Free Tibet or all of the other places that I work with, you know, that's my way of sort of being anti-political. But then at the same time, I have to be in this arena in order to make a difference because that's where the revenue stream is. There's right. a lot of competition out there. Well, I, I want to, yeah. And and look, I mean, I, like I said, so you would basically, if I, I you know, again, we've talked about this before, but it's like, you would never say I'm a political artist. Shepard would and is, you know, has a ton of political commitments and wears them on his sleeve and, you know, he can't get through a day on Instagram on one of the Shepard Ferry Instagram accounts that doesn't have some kind of like cause, some advocating for something, supporting something. So you guys are different in terms of your orientation. Well, but also, I'm an artist of color. I don't have to say I'm a political artist. <laughs> You know, yes, fair, totally. totally. I, I, and I'm not making, uh, and I, I'm not actually. I'm just more trying to uh, noting a difference in in presentation. At the same time, the guy who designed the album cover for Fear of Black Planet is a political artist. There's no other way around. It's like one of the most you know important political records ever made, right? And mm -hmm. and as you have described it, I think you know really the kind of first first hip hop concept album, right? And and you know no more political group, no more radical group, no more true like true true blue committed political group than, than Chuck and that group, right? So I guess I, the reason I raise it all is to say, is to get to the thing you've been focused on for, that's just finally about to come out right now, right? I think you were working for six years on this project 
for the Smithsonian, the hip hop anthology. I really want you to talk about it because I've been watching you struggle with it oh, yeah. for these years and it's about to come oh, out. Yeah. We're about to all be able to get it. So tell yeah. everybody what yeah. it is and talk about it through this perspective of, of making the choices of what went in it with not wanting to make it a political box set, but there's a lot of politics in it because of the nature of who these people are, what their art is like, what hip hop's all about. This is the Smithsonian mm. anthology of hip hop and rap. And this took me six years to make. And I worked with a, a team of consultants and advisors like Questlove, Chuck D, MC Light, and countless others. But this is a legacy project. The idea that the National Museum of African American History and Culture dedicated, and Folkways Recordings, I don't want to forget them. They dedicated a box set to this culture it is unimaginable yeah. a few years back. And the thing that I love the most about this collection is that they gave me free reign to do exactly what I do with no micromanaging. And we have a quote on the back from President Obama. That is not something that I would have imagined <laughs> happening in my lifetime, you know, e even 20 years ago. Right. And you mean a, a quote from a former president of the United yes, States talking about hip hop? Yes. <laughs> and to be able to have somebody pay me a decent wage, give me creative control, to be one of the producers of this collection is a lifetime's dream. So, so what's in that box? It's 129 songs across nine CDs. And I like to say it's the greatest, greatest hits collection ever assembled. So it's from the Sugar Hill Gang all the way to Drake and everybody in between. If you had a chart-topping single, it's in this box set. Were you limited by space? What were the constraints you had to operate under? Because I think, you know, as I say, I've watched you. Every time I've, I think I've ever been in that studio in the last five years, there's been some discussion of like, each one of these acts can only have one song. How am I going to choose that song? Like, Well, they had a team of advisors put the track list together. Yeah. Thank goodness I didn't have to do that. And they did that a year before I came on board. But this is just a 300-page coffee table book. This is 45 years of history. It's yes. impossible to yes. tell the whole story. I had 10 pages to tell the whole story of graffiti and street art, if you will. Yeah. So imagine trying to tell your friends that they're not going to be in this collection, even in the essay. Yes. And I had to pick the people that I thought made the greatest impact. And I still miss so many. How does it get decided that you have X number of pages to do graffiti and street art? Like, this is a process matter. I'm fascinated by it, right? Well, unfortunately, they bought the book and made the deal with the printer before I even came on board seven Ugh. years ago. So everything was pre-established. So by the time I come on board, I get to design the whole thing from scratch and conceptualize the logo and decide who the illustrators are going to be and photographers and all of it. But it's a lot of people. Yeah, It is a lot of people to consider. And my friend Jeanette Beckman was kind enough to say, take my archive, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the contract and all of it. Just 
make the most beautiful product that you can make. Jeanette Beckman, of course, uh, famous uh, documentary photographer, best yeah. known for her uh, legendary shots of hip hop groups and and of some punk groups from uh, from before that. And that's what happened with a lot of these folks. They just gave me the space to do what I need to do. And they knew that I was going to take care of their art. Even Glenn Friedman, he can be Glenn Friedman. <laughs> but everybody wanted to see this thing happen. And, and it's a joy that it is done. And I hope your listeners go to Amazon and buy this because this is a box set, a coffee table book, but it's also a huge part of American history. It is for history, man. Like I say, having watched you a little bit, you know, wrestling with it. And every time I pop in there, maybe twice a year, says working on this thing and it's a labor of love for you. And, and as with every labor of love and a thing of this scale, it's like a time capsule thing in some ways. It's like, you know, yeah. this thing, because it's the Smithsonian is going to be now the standard reference in a way, you know, school kids are going to look at this hundred years from now. It's like, so you're really the, the burden and obligations and responsibilities are very heavy. Not to me. It's not that difficult. You, you know, the thing that I love so much about this, and Shepard, you know this, yeah. there are projects that you fight for, that you dream about doing. Maybe that Led Zeppelin box set was one of those. I don't know. But then there are things that you know you are deserving of. Right. There is nobody in hip hop more qualified to design this box set than me. The team that was working on doing the research, they weren't even born when a lot of these artists came out. And they're, you know, going through catalogs and they're doing research and they're reading and they're, you know, wondering how to pronounce people's names. And I go, no, it's like this. And they're looking at me like, how could you possibly know that? And I says, because I was there. And it's a concept that is just beyond that. I want to play uh, one last piece of sound. Let's just play the shepherd sound from Colbert talking about this because it raises this music thing again. I want to go a little bit more on it. I want to hear a couple of things that Shepard has to say about it because I know how much the music matters to the work you do, Shepard. So let's listen to this and we'll talk about it on the other side. Well, pretty much my, um, my, my whole career was built upon bringing art to people in the streets where they live, not going to galleries or museums or other very narrow elitist places, but to put art where people live. Because I think, you know, art has an incredible potential to affect people emotionally and intellectually and create conversations. So the way that music works, things like Johnny Cash, Public Enemy, Bob Marley, The Clash, I, I think visual art should do more of that. It should, it should affect people viscerally and be very democratic and accessible. So the last piece of sound we played of yours, you cited Chuck D, Johnny Rotten, and Jam Master J. In that piece of sound where you're talking about your philosophy, um, your small d democratic philosophy, you cited Johnny Cash, Public Enemy, Bob Marley, uh, and The Clash. And it just, it's, it stands out. Because whenever I hear you talk about your philosophy about what you do, you always end up going back to cite musicians, right? Yeah. And it's, it's, it seems like, it seems meaningful to me, not just that you're a music head, but like it's illustrative of the thing I'm trying to, in an inarticulate way, talk about here about why music is special and as an art form and as a cultural form. And I'm, I want to hear you talk a little bit about that. And not just like I, the, the individual collaborations are what they are, but more kind of why it is that music is such a kind of special thing? Because it's not, you know, you wouldn't, as much as we all care about television, people care about film. There are lot, lots of art forms that don't have this special kind of function and the special kind of dynamic that music has that makes it such akin to the kind of street art that you've done for your whole career. 
and especially as it relates to politics. I don't know if you've ever been, if you ever had to focus on this in quite this explicit a way, but I'm interested in hearing what, how you think about that. Well, m- music is about feeling, and when you have an intense feeling about something, it's with you for life. And so, I'm trying to put as much feeling as I can into my into my visual art, but I think that it doesn't just affect your whole body the way music does. It, it is hard to articulate, but I think we can all relate to that. You know, for me, the air raid sirens at the beginning of Bring the Noise by Public Enemy, where you just know it's about to happen. It still makes my arm hair stand up every time I hear it. But then you've got the lyrics. And with with music, you have what you were talking about earlier, John, the the implicit and the explicit. When you listen sonically to what Public Enemy is doing, you know, I called it a sonic firestorm. And one time when I was having a conversation with LL Cool J, he was like, yeah, Shep, sonic firestorm. I'm going to remember that. That is a great way of putting it. And um. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Four years later, I saw him again. He comes in for the New York bro hug and be like, Sonic Firestorm, my man. I love that guy. But anyway, um, you know, the way in which you can present an idea in both style and substance and, you know, through feeling and thought is it's incredible that music does that so well. And I'm always saying to myself, how can I bring a bit of that equation into what I'm doing as a visual artist? Uh, it's a really good way of, of thinking about it. I have two last questions, and they're one for each of you guys. And that goes to this thing. So, you know, in your design work, you know, in your, you, know, you think about the way in which two guys, former, like who came from the same place, the graffiti world, you know, and made your various, made your ways in the world and came to this place of prominence and success. I think about logos are a really interesting thing. You know, you think about corporate branding is like logos is like kind of the thing, right? Like logo is the most kind of commodified thing that people hire some firm to go and make their logo and they get mood boards and a big corporate rebranding is a multi-million dollar thing. It's like a very, feels very businessy, feels very boardroomy. But I think about where do I see a Say Adams thing that like maybe the thing that now you see most frequently if you are a certain kind of person is Chappelle is the Chappelle logo, right? Dave mm-hmm. Chappelle is as big as anybody on the planet right now, is as big a cultural footprint as any human being. Mm-hmm. And man, that guy wears that C on, on almost almost every show he does. He's got some custom outfit on, make him look like a house painter or a, a, a gorilla fighter or whatever, but he's always got that, that C, or he's got the C on the necklace. That C is a Say Adams design. And Shepard, you just did the LA logo for my hometown, which uh, has had many people who love it and, and some less, but it's really a statement. It's really a statement. So I want you just you guys talk about logo work. I mean, like in some ways, the things that get seen by almost more people than almost anything else you do. They're the most populist in some sense and also the most corporate at the same time. So say you can start it. Just talk to me about the Chappelle thing and, and what went into that, how you thought about it and what it feels like to see Chappelle now be what he is and see that piece of work every time he shows up on Netflix and is watched by 87 million people with everything he drops. Well, I'll, I'll back up and say that there were many, many nights when Chuck D would drive in from Long Island and we'd come to the Def Jam offices. And, you know, Chuck is a, a trained graphic designer. He doesn't like to talk about it, but now he's finally focusing on his illustration and his fine art. And we would just 
sit in the office and just have long conversations about the power of graphic design and imagery. And at the height of Public Enemy's success, he attributed a lot of that to the logo because branding is what America was founded on. That's what the American flag is. It's partially an homage to Jasper Johns, but it's also my love of logos and branding. And the American flag is the number one brand in America. That's why people get so crazy out there. So so true. So, so true. We've had lots of conversations about that. And so when I started to make work, I, I started to always think about repetition. And, and certainly this is you know, one of the things you learn very early on as a graffiti artist. We don't always have the language to go with it, but a tag is about repetition of a logo over and over and over again. Right. And I'll say about Dave, Chris Rock introduced us and we're backstage at, you know, some gig. And he said, I love the stuff you did for Def Jam. And I really want you to design a logo for me. I'm doing a sketch comedy show. And, you know, I didn't know this guy from a hole in the wall. And I just thought to myself, when I saw his VHS tapes of his sketch comedy show, it seemed revolutionary to me. It seemed radical. Yeah. It reminded me of In Living Color. And I said, you know, you're going to set us back 100 years with this stuff <laughs> because it was just so outrageous. <laughs> and thank goodness I was wrong. Yeah. But the, the idea was I wanted something revolutionary. And it just reminded me of, you know, the Panthers and all of this stuff that was going on at that time. So that's why I did a red, black, and green letter C. Depending on the context, you know, you might not always understand that, but right. that was the idea is that I wanted it to sort of read as this sort of revolutionary graphic. And thank goodness Dave continues to use it because I'm so proud that he's found a way to maintain he broke through, but maintaining is really what's you know ultimately brought that thing into so many living rooms. The power of a great logo, I guess. I mean, like I remember the first time I saw this thing, and I thought it was fucking. I you know, I was like, that is just a brilliant, a brilliant thing. It says like it, there's a 450 page book in this. It's like yeah. there's a you know, it's, it's in a simple image that's iconic and will last forever. The black man is the number one target in America. <laughs> totally. And yes, and that's the power. I mean, again, it's an incredibly simple image that says that says yeah. so much and says it so powerfully. So I ask again, I flip to you, Shepard, and ask you the question. It's a big thing, right? You're not a native Angelino, but you've been in LA for a really long time. It's your adopted home. So you care about the city. And uh, they come to you and say, hey, uh, we need a logo refresh. We've got this, this Dodger-esque logo that was always dog shit for the last... I don't know, 10 years or whatever it was. We need, a new, we need something new. So what's the brief there and how do you think about that and what did you try to accomplish with it? A lot of people look at it and think it looks a little Miami Vice-ish. That's the kind of the quick takeaway for a lot of people. Well, um, I'm hesitant to um, place blame anywhere, especially on myself, never. No, I, I <laughs> um, but, you know, a logo for LA, which is LA is 20 cities in one city. It means so many different things to so many different people. You know, there was a lot of discussion internally for me and the collaborators at House Industries out of Delaware who worked on it. And they actually, one of their artists is actually the one that did 
the initial script and, you know, it was refined as a collective thing, but I cannot take credit personally. I was a creative director on that project and I did a lot of my own comps, but it came out of one of the other collaborators, that actual logo. But I like the logo a lot. I preferred a simpler color combination for the logo, but the brief was to make sure that LA reflects so many different things, diversity, possibility, you know, beauty, the, the, the sunsets, aspiration. And there was always the problem of a simpler color scheme didn't touch every single kind of person and, and kind of idea about what LA means. Right. You know, this went through about 40 different logos and several different rounds of revisions. What I do love about the style of the logo is that it's got a connection to Alva skateboards and uh, hand-painted signage from East LA and all all sorts of things that have to do graffiti in the script. Um, So this idea of LA as a place of possibility to create your own future, write your own future, that was a lot of what was driving the use of the script. And then of course, the sun with the with the squiggle beneath it, the squiggle could be a reflection off water. It could be a, a brush mark for the creative element of LA. Um, it could be a spotlight in Hollywood. But you know, if you do City Hall, you're only which is yeah. iconic. You're only dealing with certain people. You're from LA, so you know. If you do a palm tree, I do think that the color scheme ends up feeling like it could have a connection to Miami, to Palm Springs. But yes. try sometime to yeah. get an, a, a logo down to a color scheme that pleases everyone and then also doesn't suggest forest fires. Uh, LA is impossible. Red, red you know, we couldn't do. We couldn't do red. You think about all, <laughs> you, you think about like those, these giant, like I grew up in the valley. So you think about these giant communities of like some of the largest communities anywhere in the world outside of India, of Indian Americans and like what they're yeah. like, living in yeah. Reseda. And you think about what's LA to them. It's not, you know, it's certainly not the Hollywood Hills. It's not, you know, the beach. It's not a lot of things. So LA is complicated, man. It's a hard thing to represent in any, in, in any hard thing to represent in, in 10,000 words, let alone in one single well, image. One thing I have to say is that I knew that it was a fairly thankless task. It would be impossible to please everyone. But what I presented to LA tourism as my belief, and I know the rest of the team felt the same way, is that everything is suspect when it's first introduced. But the more people live with it and the more they associate it with the place that they love, then the attachment grows. And so if I feel that the fundamental aesthetics are sound, the design is sound, then L.A. itself will do the rest of the work eventually. I will say, uh, as we end here, just to put the button on that, my favorite reaction to it was Conan O'Brien, who tweeted out, Los Angeles has an official new logo and slogan quote, LA, we don't not have cocaine here, um, which I, I think I thought was a pretty good, uh, was a pretty good thing. Um, so I, I will say for the record, before we go, as I sit here right now, uh, Shepard, I said before that I had, I had some work of yours in, in our house because when your person from your, from your place reached out, I was like, well, we have a lot of Shepard Ferry around this house and it's true. I mean, I will, I'm going to turn my monitor right now and I'm going to show you right here on the wall. There it is. I have this, this proof here sits in my office of the Obey Records. Nice. This is an artist proof. I bought this at a gallery in in Sydney some years ago. This big giant artist proof of yours, Obey Records. It's got the great kind of Cupid with the devil's uh, pitchfork in in its hand, and it says "Needle in the Groove: uh, A Study in Propaganda High Fidelity." 
Uh, Obey Fidelity, Los Angeles, New York, Tokyo, San Francisco. Long play. So that sort of sits above uh, just to the side of my desk here in my office at home. And out in our living room, we actually have a piece built around an actual stencil of yours, uh, Shepard, from some graffiti work you did also in Sydney. And then outside the door of my office in the hallway out here, there is a triptych of three pieces of of says from his trusted brand series that uh, Diana and I have have had lovingly installed. So like the first thing you see when you walk in our house is is three of, of says pieces. And I know um, I know that means something to him, although I'm not sure what. So you guys are well represented in this household. And um, I mean, I can't believe you sent a bunch of things, a bunch of more artist proofs out here in that tube. In addition to all the 400 t-shirts you sent, I've got a bunch more of uh, a bunch more Shepherd Fairy pieces to get framed and uh, and get on my wall someplace. So thank you. I'm insanely generous. Thank you for doing that. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm I'm a big fan. And, um, you know, I bring the media to the people that bring the media to the people. So Right. <laughs> I was going to say, Say's never given me shit, you know, but uh, that's okay. Um, you know, I don't have an army of people no, working you don't. for me. It's like, it's true. You, you need know. a you need an ar- you need an army. It's true. Um, thank you guys for doing this. Um, it was awesome. My pleasure. And, and always great to see you, Say. Same here. Thanks again to Say Adams and Shepard Ferry for being with us. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please subscribe to Hell on High Water and share us, and rate us, and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell on High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 